Good afternoon, and thanks for tuning in to the Vine and Branches podcast. My name is Allie O'Neill, and today I'm going to start a short series on behavior and behavior modification. modification. So my end goal here is I want you to take one behavior that you have, and I will explain what behaviors are. I want you to take one behavior and work on that one, and then we're going to modify it into something different. So some of you have been trying to go on this diet kick, okay, because it's the new year and you're unable to do it because of certain behaviors that you have. So you may need to modify that specific behavior. So I'm going to be talking with you today about number one, what is the definition of a behavior? Number two, I'm going to be talking to you about the characteristics that make up a part of behavior. And number three, I'm going to teach you to how to start measuring this behavior that you have and getting other people to measure it for you. Because it isn't until after we're able to measure this behavior and figure out its frequency, its duration, its intensity, and its latency that we can start reforming that behavior and turning it into something positive for ourselves. So in previous podcasts, I've been talking about your personality and your characteristics and your traits. And we've been going through definitions of all these different things so you can explore yourself a little bit more and understand why you tick the way that you tick. So this one is great because this can help you overcome some of those issues like anxiety that we've talked about. Maybe there's a specific behavior that goes along with it that you want to modify to lower that anxiety. So those are just different examples. So starting off, what is a behavior? Now, A human behavior is something that people do and they say, okay? So don't get behavior mixed up with diagnosis or terminology because I think a lot of people disassociate, um, you know, the actual behaviors with the diagnosis. So if I say that someone is behaving like um, like someone who has ADHD, that is incorrect. ADHD is a diagnosis for a person. So if I'm looking at a patient and I want to diagnose them, I first have to measure and understand the behaviors to diagnose them. You cannot diagnose someone without measuring behaviors. So ways I can do that is if someone's coming in and they are tapping their fingers while I'm talking, okay, that's a behavior. It's something that is measurable, you are able to see, and it's something that someone is doing, okay? A behavior is also something you can see it in the way that people speak. So maybe a person with ADHD is someone who comes into the office and is talking really fast and then interrupting me in the middle of all sentences. So that is something that they're saying. Um, There are also little ticks and cues that you can notice as well, but we're talking about you not diagnosing other people. So remember, behaviors are actions. They are not terminology or diagnosis words. And a lot of people can get in trouble for doing that. And I see this in the workplace, especially. So if an employer says, I'm really worried that this person's obsessive compulsive disorder is going to keep them from 
working well with their coworkers and being efficient in their as efficient in their job as they could. That employer is now stepping a boundary that they shouldn't be stepping because they are now saying that they have the authority to diagnose said coworker with obsessive compulsive disorder. Now, what they probably meant to do is just say, you know, this person has behavioral characteristics of obsessive compulsive disorder. That's what they need to do. What they need to do is say, hey, I'm worried that this person's need to perfect things is going to keep them from doing their job. They need to focus on the behaviors. So if we focus on the behaviors, then maybe we wouldn't get a diagnosis, right? Well, sometimes it doesn't work like that and you're given a diagnosis and then you have to learn how to modify those behaviors that come along with a diagnosis. So I'm not going to pick a specific one for all of us to work on, okay, because each of you are different. So I'm not going to take anxiety or, um, you know, depression or suicide or anything like that. I'm just going to take one behavior and we're going to focus on that. So there are characteristics of behavior and the first one and what we're really going to need to, we're going to use all these characteristics when we're trying to modify, but is that it can be measured. So behaviors are going to have different dimensions and this just means, dimension just means that it's a measurable aspect of the behavior. So we have things such as frequency of the behavior. So how many times do you do said behavior? So I could say that someone bit their fingernails 12 times in a class period. So this is kind of counting would be my frequency. Then I'm going to have my duration of my behavior. And this is going to be the time from the instance that the behavior actually starts until when it stops. So you can say that um, so-and-so jogged for 25 minutes, okay? So they jogged, the first start would be one minute, and the end start would be 25 minutes. Then we're going to talk about the measuring of intensity of a behavior. So this is going to be the actual physical force that is involved in the behavior. So if I'm saying that someone bench pressed 220 pounds... That's the intensity, okay? So they bench pressed action, but what did they bench press? We're saying 220 pounds. That was the intensity. That's the physical force. So then I'm going to measure the speed of the behavior, which is going to be my latency. And this speed usually comes from some event to the start of a behavior. So we got to think of the latency. Okay, so what began this behavior? Well, actually, I noticed that, you know, after my grandfather died, I started exhibiting A, B, or C behavior, okay? So all of these things are really important to keep in mind when we're measuring this behavior. And we're going to do an exercise together on how you can measure your own here in a bit after we go through all these. So the next that we're going to do is a characteristic is that behavior is observed, it's described, and it's recorded. So this can be done by the person who's engaging in the said behavior or by people around you. Now, I think that it is great to have both done. So if I'm observing a patient that's coming into the office, I'm seeing what behaviors this person is exhibiting and measuring those. I'm then recording them and then I am going to describe them. So I also say, hey, listen, I noticed these behaviors in you. Maybe it would be beneficial for you to go back 
back home and for you to measure how many times you do this you do these behaviors you know observe yourself get in your own head see what you do and see if you observe the same things that I do and come back and let me know we can pick other people in our lives such as our husband or you know a best friend someone who really knows us not someone who's just in passing because that's where you're really going to get those true behaviors to come out. Because we tend to put a mask on when we go to church or when we go to the grocery store or any other social event because we may not want these behaviors to be as apparent. So someone may not be able to properly observe that behavior. Okay? So then we're going to talk about the other characteristic, which is going to be its influence on the environment. And you're probably like, wait. What? How does my behavior have an impact on the environment? It has to do with your physical environment as well as the social environment that's around you because it affects other people as well as ourselves. So because our behavior is actually an action that involves a movement through space and through time, the occurrence of our behaviors are going to have some sort of effect on the environment in which our behavior is going to occur. So... Sometimes this effect on the environment is going to be really obvious and it's going to be like the turn of a light switch. You can just see the on and the off. And the effect of the physical environment is when it's the most obvious. So for example, if you raise your hand in class and your professor is going to call on you, that's going to have an effect on other people because... That means they don't have to be called on or maybe you can answer a question or maybe that person really wanted to answer the question that you're answering. Regardless, it's affecting someone. It's a behavior that is affecting someone else. Um, if you're reciting a phone number from a website and then you're more likely to remember it and then dial the correct number. This is an effect that it has on yourself. If someone else was to hear you recite it, it may make it easier for someone else, but typically it's more of an effect on yourself. And the last character, well, the last two characteristics, one is that behavior is lawful. That means that the occurrence of your behavior is going to be systematically influenced by your environmental events. So basic behavioral principles are gonna describe the functional relationships between our behavior and the environmental events that are around us. And this actually describes how our behavior is influenced as a function of the people around us, the building blocks of our behavior and our modification procedures. So if my behavior is due to the fact of how I was treated as a child, then to modify it, I'm going to have to go in and see what was being done, what's triggering me. To modify it, I'm going to need to use something that is lawful. Okay? So my final one is that behavior is either overt or it's covert. So an overt behavior is going to be an action that can be observed and then recorded by a person other than the one who's engaging in the behavior. And then covert behavior is more like a private event. It can actually be observed and recorded by another person. So thinking can be observed only by the person engaging in the behavior. So if I'm having a covert behavior, that would be um, obsessive thinking cues. Okay, so if I am going through the day constantly wondering if my spouse isn't going to come home and they may pass away and I'm thinking of all the different ways that that could happen, then that's covert. That's in my mind. Someone can't observe that thinking process 
in my head. So that's something that you would have to observe. A way to get a person in your life to help modify that behavior is if you're going to a counselor or a psychiatrist or a psychologist and you verbalize this mental thought process. So when you're being analyzed, when you come in, you're being asked a, a you know long list of questions. Have you ever thought of such and such? Have you ever experienced such and such in your dreams? Things like this that can give these covert behaviors and, and put them over to light for the person who's trying to modify those behaviors, okay? So hopefully that starts to make a little bit more sense, that it's more of an action. So the first thing that we're going to do is I want us to take one behavior So the behavior that most drives yourself nuts or creates the most problems for you, I want you to remember that behavior, okay? And then I want you to make sure that it's something that you're doing or you're saying and make sure that it is something that you can actually measure. So it has to have dimension and frequency and intensity and latency. So we cannot take something that is going to be indefinite. So for example, if someone was trying to change uh, the way that they were dreaming because of the way that they're thinking before they're going to sleep and then differentiate between a night terror and a nightmare, that's indefinite. You can't measure that. It has way too many components that makes it difficult. Now, if I wanted to take something that is either, um, you know, something that you want to change, that's simple. So I could say, okay, I want to stop um, eating, you know, multiple carbs in a day. That's a behavior. You're eating excessively. So a behavior is something that's either an excess or a deficit. So you could also be trying to modify something else. Like I'm not exercising enough in a day. So since I'm in deficit of the exercise, I want to increase the measure of exercise that I have in my life. Okay. So those are the different ways that you can do it. So pick something that's realistic um, and that you can come up with a treatment plan for yourself later on. So typically you have a counselor or a psychologist or a psychiatrist who's going to give you a treatment plan for said behaviors. Or maybe even it's a um, physical trainer if you're going more of a physical aspect of things. But you want to be able to give yourself a treatment plan and this is something we're going to do at the end. So let's go back to um, measuring. So take that one behavior that you want to measure and I want you to think of first the frequency. How often do you do the said behavior? Is it once a week? Is it once a day? Is it multiple times a day? Then I want you to think of the duration. So how long does this go on for? So let's say I am eating carbs. Frequency is I'm eating them every single day and I'm eating it multiple times a day. And let's say that I go on a binge from one to four every day. Okay, that's just my duration. There's a start and there's a stop. 
Then I want to think of the intensity of this behavior. So what is the physical force that has to do with this behavior? Is it putting me to the point where I'm exhausted? Is it getting me in a state where I am feeling depressive? What's the intensity? Then I want to think of my latency. So this is measuring the speed of my behavior. So from what event, what event sparked this behavior? Was it getting out of the military and just not being as active and then this behavior started? Was it that someone was picking on you about your weight and you felt that it was more effective to just keep eating and who cares? What was the event that started? After you have all of those things down, obviously keep them to yourself. And now I want you to observe, describe, and record this behavior. Take, let's say three days. You can take three days and you are going to measure all of these things each day, seeing if there's any sort of change in it, if there are any factors that trigger it. And you're going to observe yourself. So you can keep a little diary kind of as if you would keep a food diary or you're counting macros or, or carbs or whatever, whatever you may be counting. Get a notebook. And then once you notice that behavior happening, write it down, put a timestamp, and then add a little bit more information to it. So you're going to observe, describe, and record. You're going to say, hey... This is what happened. This is the time that it happened. This is what I felt. This is um, what I heard. This was other people's reactions when I was doing this. You're like keeping a diary on this behavior. And the most important thing is to record it because we think that we're recording it in our mind and that's enough, but sometimes we lose some of the details. Now, if you're being bold, and this is what I do recommend because it's helpful to have an unbiased opinion come at you. Pick a spouse, a best friend, a brother, a sister, a mother, a father, anyone on your life in your life that can observe you as well. Tell them what behavior it is that you want to modify and give them the same information that I just gave you. Say, I want to observe this behavior of myself. I want to then describe what I was like when I was, you know, experiencing this behavior. And then I want you to record it down. So did they, and then have them even say how they engaged with you afterwards, because that's great as well. Because if we see how other people are engaging with us, we can see if they're enabling us or not and helping that behavior keep going in a cycle that doesn't stop. Okay, so this is the first step that we're going to do. Make sure to record your, um, your social and your physical interactions in your environment as well. Is it different in different environments? Like you go to church, it's one way. You're at home, it's another. You're at the grocery store, it's another one. Um, you're at a retreat of some sort, it's another one. You're at work, it's another one. Make sure you're putting times, places, events, all of that in there. So your first step is going to be to measure it to go through and observe for three days. And then after this, we're going to talk about what comes up with your observations, what you may have learned about yourself, and then how we can start to actually modify that behavior. 
So I hope that this was helpful for y'all. Some of you have been really interested in modifying behaviors and getting things better. And I've had specific questions like, how do I decrease my anxiety? And that's a really loaded question because you're using that diagnosis. I, I just want to focus on one thing you're doing associated with that anxiety and let's work on that. So you can't get rid of the whole shebang, but you can get rid of an aspect of it and start picking away at those to then help that diagnosis diminish. So whatever it is that you're working on, that you're trying to work through, know that there is a positive way to modify behavior. And before I leave you, I'm going to tell you what a behavior modification is so you know what our next steps are. So behavior modification is the applied science and it's going to be the actual professional practice that's going to be concerned with analyzing and then modifying your behavior. So it's going to be saying, this is all the breakdown of your behavior and now this is how we're going to change it. So I hope this information was helpful for you. Stay tuned as I'm going to put other episodes up going forward in this process. If you have any questions or you need some guidance along the way, you're not really sure what to document, what to put, or maybe you're feeling a little bit stressed or worried about something that you're finding out about yourself, please feel free to reach out to me or Crisis Text Line is here for you 24-7 for free. You can text 741-741 and say hello. And when you're talking to them, they can help you get through the problems that you are, come through a plan and it's just good temporary counseling and it may be great to deal with this process because this process can bring up a lot of insecurities for some people. So I hope you guys have a great day and I look forward to speaking with y'all soon. Good afternoon, and thanks for tuning in to the Vine and Branches podcast. My name is Allie O'Neill, and today I'm going to start a short series on behavior and behavior modification. So my end goal here is I want you to take one behavior that you have, and I will explain what behaviors are. I want you to take one behavior and work on that one, and then we're going to modify it into something different. So some of you have been trying to go on this diet kick, okay, because it's the new year and you're unable to do it because of certain behaviors that you have. So you may need to modify that specific behavior. So I'm going to be talking with you today about number one, what is the definition of a behavior? Number two, I'm going to be talking to you about the characteristics that make up a part of behavior. And number three, I'm going to teach you to how to start measuring this behavior that you have and getting other people to measure it for you. Because it isn't until after we're able to measure this behavior and figure out its frequency, its duration, its intensity, and its latency that we can start reforming that behavior and turning it into something positive for ourselves. So 
In previous podcasts, I've been talking about your personality and your characteristics and your traits. And we've been going through definitions of all these different things so you can explore yourself a little bit more and understand why you tick the way that you tick. So this one is great because this can help you overcome some of those issues like anxiety that we've talked about. Maybe there's a specific behavior that goes along with it that you want to modify to lower that anxiety. So those are just different examples. So starting off, what is a behavior? Now, a human behavior is something that people do and they say, okay? So don't get behavior mixed up with diagnosis or terminology because I think a lot of people disassociate um, you know, the actual behaviors with the diagnosis. So if I say that someone is behaving like, um, like someone who has ADHD, that is incorrect. ADHD is a diagnosis for a person. So if I'm looking at a patient and I want to diagnose them, I first have to measure and understand the behaviors to diagnose them. You cannot diagnose someone without measuring behaviors. So ways I can do that is if someone's coming in and they are tapping their fingers while I'm talking, okay, that's a behavior. It's something that is measurable, you are able to see, and it's something that someone is doing, okay? A behavior is also something you can see it in the way that people speak. So maybe a person with ADHD is someone who comes into the office and is talking really fast and then interrupting me in the middle of all sentences. So that is something that they're saying. Um, there are also little ticks and cues that you can notice as well, but we're talking about you not diagnosing other people. So remember, behaviors are actions. They are not terminology or diagnosis words. And a lot of people can get in trouble for doing that. And I see this in the workplace, especially. So if an employer says, I'm really worried that this person's obsessive compulsive disorder is going to keep them from working well with their coworkers and being efficient in their as efficient in their job as they could. That employer is now stepping a boundary that they shouldn't be stepping because they are now saying that they have the authority to diagnose said coworker with obsessive compulsive disorder. Now, what they probably meant to do is just say, you know, this person has behavioral characteristics of obsessive compulsive disorder. That's what they need to do. What they need to do is say, hey, I'm worried that this person's need to perfect things is going to keep them from doing their job. They need to focus on the behaviors. So if we focus on the behaviors, then maybe we wouldn't get a diagnosis, right? Well, sometimes it doesn't work like that and you're given a diagnosis and then you have to learn how to modify those behaviors that come along with a diagnosis. So I'm not going to pick a specific one for all of us to work on, okay? Because each of you are different. So I'm not going to take anxiety or, um, you know, depression or suicide or anything like that. I'm just going to take one behavior and we're going to focus on that. So there are characteristics of behavior. And the first one and what we're really going to need to, we're going to use all these characteristics when we're trying to modify, but is that it can be measured, 
So behaviors are going to have different dimensions. And this just means, dimension just means that it's a measurable aspect of the behavior. So we have things such as frequency of the behavior. So how many times do you do said behavior? So I could say that someone bit their fingernails 12 times in a class period. So this is kind of counting would be my frequency. Then I'm going to have my duration of my behavior. And this is going to be the time from the instance that the behavior actually starts until when it stops. So you can say that um, so-and-so jogged for 25 minutes, okay? So they jogged, the first start would be one minute, and the end start would be 25 minutes. Then we're going to talk about the measuring of intensity of a behavior. So this is going to be the actual physical force that is involved in the behavior. So if I'm saying that someone bench pressed 220 pounds... That's the intensity, okay? So they bench pressed action, but what did they bench press? We're saying 220 pounds. That was the intensity. That's the physical force. So then I'm going to measure the speed of the behavior, which is going to be my latency. And this speed usually comes from some event to the start of a behavior. So we got to think of the latency. Okay, so what began this behavior? Well, actually, I noticed that, you know, after my grandfather died, I started exhibiting A, B, or C behavior, okay? So all of these things are really important to keep in mind when we're measuring this behavior. And we're going to do an exercise together on how you can measure your own here in a bit after we go through all these. So the next that we're going to do is a characteristic is that behavior is observed, it's described, and it's recorded. So this can be done by the person who's engaging in the said behavior or by people around you. Now, I think that it is great to have both done. So if I'm observing a patient that's coming into the office, I'm seeing what behaviors this person is exhibiting and measuring those. I'm then recording them and then I am going to describe them. So I also say, hey, listen, I noticed these behaviors in you. Maybe it would be beneficial for you to go back home and for you to measure how many times you do this you do these behaviors you know observe yourself get in your own head see what you do and see if you observe the same things that I do and come back and let me know we can pick other people in our lives such as our husband or you know a best friend someone who really knows us not someone who's just in passing Because that's where you're really going to get those true behaviors to come out. Because we tend to put a mask on when we go to church or when we go to the grocery store or any other social event because we may not want these behaviors to be as apparent. So someone may not be able to properly observe that behavior. Okay? So then we're going to talk about the other characteristic, which is going to be its influence on the environment. And you're probably like, wait... What? How does my behavior have an impact on the environment? It has to do with your physical environment as well as the social environment that's around you because it affects other people as well as ourselves. So because our behavior is actually an action that involves a movement through space and through time, the occurrence of our behaviors are going to have some sort of effect on the environment in which our behavior is going to occur. So... Sometimes this effect on the environment is going to be really obvious and it's going to be like the turn of a light switch. You can just see the on and the off. And the effect of the physical environment 
is when it's the most obvious. So, for example, if you raise your hand in class and your professor is going to call on you, that's going to have an effect on other people because that means they don't have to be called on or maybe you can answer a question or maybe that person really wanted to answer the question that you're answering. Regardless, it's affecting someone. It's a behavior that is affecting someone else. Um, If you're reciting a phone number from a website and then you're more likely to remember it and then dial the correct number. This is an effect that it has on yourself. If someone else was to hear you recite it, it may make it easier for someone else, but typically it's more of an effect on yourself. And the last character, well, the last two characteristics, one is that behavior is lawful. That means that the occurrence of your behavior is going to be systematically influenced by your environmental events. So basic behavioral principles are going to describe the functional relationships between our behavior and the environmental events that are around us. And this actually describes how our behavior is influenced as a function of the people around us, the building blocks of our behavior and our modification procedures. So if my behavior is due to the fact of how I was treated as a child, then to modify it, I'm going to have to go in and see what was being done, what's triggering me. To modify it, I'm going to need to use something that is lawful. Okay? So my final one is that behavior is either overt or it's covert. So... An overt behavior is going to be an action that can be observed and then recorded by a person other than the one who's engaging in the behavior. And then covert behavior is more like a private event. It can actually be observed and recorded by another person. So thinking can be observed only by the person engaging in the behavior. So if I'm having a covert behavior, that would be um, obsessive thinking cues. Okay, so if I am going through the day constantly wondering if my spouse isn't going to come home and they may pass away and I'm thinking of all the different ways that that could happen, then that's covert. That's in my mind. Someone can't observe that thinking process in my head. So that's something that you would have to observe. A way to get a person in your life to help modify that behavior is if you're going to a counselor or a psychiatrist or a psychologist and you verbalize this mental thought process. So when you're being analyzed, when you come in, you're being asked a, a you know long list of questions. Have you ever thought of such and such? Have you ever experienced such and such in your dreams? Things like this that can give these covert behaviors and, and put them over to light for the person who's trying to modify those behaviors, okay? So hopefully that starts to make a little bit more sense that it's more of an action. So the first thing that we're going to do is I want us to take one behavior. So the behavior that most drives yourself nuts or creates the most problems for you, I want you to remember that behavior, okay? And then I want you to make sure that it's something that you're doing or you're saying and make sure that it is something that you can actually measure. So it has to have dimension 
and frequency and intensity and latency. So we cannot take something that is going to be indefinite. So for example, if someone was trying to change uh, the way that they were dreaming because of the way that they're thinking before they're going to sleep and then differentiate between a night terror and a nightmare, that's indefinite. You can't measure that. It has way too many components that makes it difficult. Now, if I wanted to take something that is either, um, you know, something that you want to change, that's simple. So I could say, okay, I want to stop um, eating, you know, multiple carbs in a day. That's a behavior. You're eating excessively. So a behavior is something that's either an excess or a deficit. So you could also be trying to modify something else. Like I'm not exercising enough in a day. So since I'm in deficit of the exercise, I want to increase the measure of exercise that I have in my life. Okay. So those are the different ways that you can do it. So pick something that's realistic um, and that you can come up with a treatment plan for yourself later on. So typically you have a counselor or a psychologist or a psychiatrist who's going to give you a treatment plan for said behaviors, or maybe even it's a um, physical trainer if you're going more of a physical aspect of things. But you want to be able to give yourself a treatment plan, and this is something we're going to do at the end. So let's go back to um, measuring. So take that one behavior that you want to measure, and I want you to think of first the frequency. How often do you do the said behavior? Is it once a week? Is it once a day? Is it multiple times a day? Then I want you to think of the duration. So how long does this go on for? So let's say I am eating carbs. Frequency is I'm eating them every single day and I'm eating it multiple times a day. And let's say that I go on a binge from one to four every day. Okay, that's just my duration. There's a start and there's a stop. Then I want to think of the intensity of this behavior. So what is the physical force that has to do with this behavior? Is it putting me to the point where I'm exhausted? Is it getting me in a state where I am feeling depressive what's the intensity then I want to think of my latency so this is measuring the speed of my behavior so from what event what event sparked this behavior was it getting out of the military and just not being as active and then this behavior started Was it that someone was picking on you about your weight and you felt that it was more effective to just keep eating and who cares? What was the event that started? After you have all of those things down, obviously keep them to yourself. And now I want you to observe, describe, and record this behavior. Take, let's say three days. You can take three days and you are going to measure all of these things each day, seeing if there's any sort of change in it, if there are any factors that trigger it. 
and you're going to observe yourself. So you can keep a little diary kind of as if you would keep a food diary or you're counting macros or, or carbs or whatever, whatever you may be counting. Get a notebook and then once you notice that behavior happening, write it down, put a timestamp and then add a little bit more information to it. So you're going to observe, describe and record. You're going to say, hey, this is what happened. This is the time that it happened. This is what I felt. This is um, what I heard. This was other people's reactions when I was doing this. You're like keeping a diary on this behavior. And the most important thing is to record it because we think that we're recording it in our mind and that's enough, but sometimes we lose some of the details. Now, if you're being bold, and this is what I do recommend because it's helpful to have an unbiased opinion come at you. Pick a spouse, a best friend, a brother, a sister, a mother, a father, anyone on your life in your life that can observe you as well. Tell them what behavior it is that you want to modify and give them the same information that I just gave you. Say, I want to observe this behavior of myself. I want to then describe what I was like when I was, you know, experiencing this behavior. And then I want you to record it down. So did they, and then have them even say how they engaged with you afterwards, because that's great as well. Because if we see how other people are engaging with us, we can see if they're enabling us or not and helping that behavior keep going in a cycle that doesn't stop. Okay, so this is the first step that we're going to do. Make sure to record your, um, your social and your physical interactions in your environment as well. Is it different in different environments? Like you go to church, it's one way. You're at home, it's another. You're at the grocery store, it's another one. Um, You're at a retreat of some sort, it's another one. You're at work, it's another one. Make sure you're putting times, places, events, all of that in there. So your first step is going to be to measure it, to go through and observe for three days. And then after this, we're going to talk about what comes up with your observations, what you may have learned about yourself, and then how we can start to actually modify that behavior. So I hope that this was helpful for y'all. Some of you have been really interested in modifying behaviors and getting things better. And I've had specific questions like, how do I decrease my anxiety? And that's a really loaded question because you're using that diagnosis. I, I just want to focus on one thing you're doing associated with that anxiety and let's work on that. So you can't get rid of the whole shebang, but you can get rid of an aspect of it and start picking away at those to then help that diagnosis diminish. So whatever it is that you're working on, that you're trying to work through, know that there is a positive way to modify behavior. And before I leave you, I'm going to tell you what a behavior modification is so you know what our next steps are. So behavior modification is the applied science and it's going to be the actual professional practice that's going to be concerned with analyzing and then modifying your behavior. So it's going to be saying, this is all the breakdown of your behavior and now this is how we're going to change it. 
So I hope this information was helpful for you. Stay tuned as I'm going to put other episodes up going forward in this process. If you have any questions or you need some guidance along the way, you're not really sure what to document, what to put, or maybe you're feeling a little bit stressed or worried about something that you're finding out about yourself, please feel free to reach out to me or Crisis Text Line is here for you 24-7 for free. You can text 741-741 and say hello. And when you're talking to them, they can help you get through the problems that you are, come through a plan and it's just good temporary counseling and it may be great to deal with this process because this process can bring up a lot of insecurities for some people. So I hope you guys have a great day and I look forward to speaking with y'all soon. Good afternoon, and thanks for tuning in to the Vine and Branches podcast. My name is Allie O'Neill, and today we're going to be talking about the six personality types in regards to vocation. So that sounds like a mouthful, but I had a really neat, just a really neat idea for a podcast. Uh, someone ended up messaging me on Instagram and said that they have been having a really hard time with career development. And they've jumped in and out of different careers, but they're not really sure what job is the fit for them. And I totally relate to that because some people, you can be like me where you want to do everything and try everything out, and that can be dangerous. Or you can just be so (coughs) excuse me, so confused that you have no idea what path to go on to. So from a biblical perspective, I would highly recommend starting with a spiritual gifting test. Uh, One of my mentors, actually multiple mentors of mine, have have given me spiritual assessments. And these have been really great because I've been able to figure out what those spiritual gifts are that the Lord has given me and how I can use them into practice in my daily life and through my vocation. Uh, It also helped me to really know what was going to really set my heart on fire when I was volunteering at church. So what area was I not going to feel like I was being burnt out or um, was I going to feel a little bit more satisfied? It really helped to narrow that down for me and it can be great for vocation as well. But in addition to that, there is a man, his name uh, is known throughout personality psychology, and his name is John Holland. And he came up with this theory that most people are either one of six personality types. So we have realistic, they're the doers. We have the investigative people who are the thinkers, the artistic people who are the creators, the social or the helpers. The enterprising, who are the persuaders, and the conventional organizers. Now, these characteristics are going to be described in this podcast, and it's called uh, Holland Six Personality Types. So if you want to do some research on your own in your free time and uh, maybe even print out a PDF or, you know, take a test for one of John Holland's tests yourself, this is a really great way to see how your personality can fit into your vocation. Um, The person who messaged me was saying, you know, I just, I'm trying to work and 
I, I'm just not enjoying what I'm doing. Like, why is that? And, and we just had a really good conversation. And I told him I'd do a podcast on this. So he told me I could share this with you, which makes me pretty excited that we get to talk about personality because it's one of my favorite areas of psychology. So anyways, our first person is going to be our realist. They're realistic. They're doers. These are people that like to work with their hands. And the first thing that I can think of when I think of the realistic doer is my husband, 2AT. So realistic occupations are frequently going to involve work activities they're going to include practical, hands-on problems, problems and solutions. So these may be people or, you know, in your life that they seem like they can fix anything. They're just good with manual labor. They've always enjoyed blue-collar work, and they do it even as hobbies. So... Sometimes people may deal with plants, animals, and different other real-world materials like wood, tools, machinery, and a lot of them require working outside and do not involve a lot of tedious paperwork or working closely with others. Many realistic doers are introverts or, um, yeah, they are introverts. They like to work with other objects, but try to avoid those social activities like teaching, healing, and informing others. And they do have really great skills with working with tools, electrical drawings, machines. So I would say that the realistic doer is going to be someone who values practical things that you can see, touch, and you can use. Uh, my husband would definitely agree with me as he says that these are people who see themselves as practical, mechanical, and realistic. So good fields of work to get into could be engineering, construction, woodworking. You could work with plants or animals, whether that's um, working in a zoo or um, horticulture whatever that may be, but it's not going to involve dealing with a lot of people directly, and it's definitely not going to involve um, doing any public speaking or paperwork. Uh, the next personality type, number two, is going to be our investigative thinkers. These occupations are going to be dealing with extensive, I'm going to highlight extensive amounts of thinking. So, these are people who are going to really involve searching for the facts and figuring out problems mentally. They do brain workouts for fun. They really like to go through difficult problems and find solutions. So you could, you'd probably be sure to know that they're going to study and solve math and science problems. But they're not going to want to really be a part of leading, selling, or persuading other people. They're just going to want to deal with that solving those problems. So an investigative thinker really values science and they see themselves as precise, they're scientific, and they know that they're intellectual. Researchers are very, very, very highly known for their investigative thinking. 
And we also have people who are in the police force or who deal with criminology uh, attorneys that like doing that. However, they don't like the aspect of leading and selling or persuading other people. So that's why some of them don't get into uh, upper level like management or work their way up the tier there. So that's our investigative thinker. So if that sounds like you, that may be a good field. Then we have the artistic creator. These are going to work with forms of designs and patterns. So <coughs> when we think of someone who's artistic, we think of self-expression. And that can their work really doesn't have many guidelines. So their expression can be done without actually having to follow uh, a clear set of rules. So leniency is big for artistic creators. So if you like to do things like art, drama, crafts, dance, uh, what else? Uh, music, creative writing, anything that's going to avoid highly ordered or even repetitive activities. So if you're super organized, then you may not be as much on the creative side. At least not vocationally speaking. So... They're going to value the creative arts, and then they're going to see themselves as expressive, original, and independent. Usually like to be their own bosses. So if you're going to get into the arts, then you're that artistic creator. Uh, the next one on John Holland's personality type is our social helper. So these occupations are going to actually work more with communicating with and teaching people. And these occupations are also going to involve helping or providing services to others. So this is me. I am the social helper. And I like to do things to help other people, which means uh, like teaching, nursing, giving first aid, uh, providing information to other people, avoiding using machines, tools, and animals to achieve a goal. That is me to AT. My husband will tell you that I can't fix anything. Even if I have to have some schematic of how to put a toddler's toy together, we got him a car's racetrack. I can't do it. And I get frustrated. So I definitely avoid any way to use machines or tools or animals for that fact to get things done, which is, it's really a good pair because he's the fixer and I am the helper. <laughs> so we make a pretty dynamic pair. But anyways, um, so the social helper is going to be good at teaching, counseling, nursing, or actually giving other people information and really helpful in solving social problems because this is something that they value. Um, they see themselves as helpful, friendly, and even trustworthy. So these may be three words that they use to describe themselves. And uh, for personality types, if, if you're someone who's a high empathizer, you really feel for other people and you enjoy doing volunteer work and you enjoy getting involved and making a difference, this is a really good field for you to go into. Uh, many social helpers are counselors, psychotherapists, um, they work in hospitality, you'll see them as nurses, doctors, um, anything where you're working with uh, health, uh, health and maintenance, uh, social ability of other people, or social workers, that is a great field for someone who's a social helper to get into. 
Our fifth is going to be our enterprising persuader. This is what I'm going to call my business men and women out there. They are frequently going to involve starting and carrying out projects. It can actually involve leading people and making different decisions, but it can also require risk-taking and deal with business. So my entrepreneurs out there, this is all the way you. So this is where you're going to have to persuade people. You try to sell things and ideas, but they're also going to try to avoid activities that are going to require careful observation or even scientific and analytical thinking. So if you're trying to get in a business of doing that, then that's probably not for you. Um, so this person is going to need to be good at leading other people and selling things or ideas. And their value of success is going to typically be in politics, leadership, or business. Uh, I have a friend who is an enterprising persuader all the way. He's always thinking about how to make the next million, uh, how to lead other people to go on the journey with him. And he's always coming up with some new innovative way to create something. And he's definitely the enterprising persuader that I think of in my life. Um, They're going to see themselves as energetic, ambitious, and sociable. And that is my friend to a T. Uh, So if you're thinking of trying to be a CEO of a company, of creating your own business, whether it's for social awareness, whatever it is, these are really self-starters and people who just are able to create a following very easily. They're very easy to, you know, to bring people in to what they're trying to work on next. So the last vocational personality type is going to be our conventional organizer. So jobs for a conventional organizer is going to be following a set procedure and routine. So this could include working with data and details, and it's probably going to be more than having ideas themselves. And there's almost always a clear line of authority to follow. So the military is uh, or government jobs are great for the conventional organizer because they're able to follow instruction really well and don't necessarily like coming up with the ideas themselves. So they prefer to work more with numbers, records, or machines in a set and orderly way. So they try to avoid ambiguous, unstructured activities. So these are the the type of people who like to have a really pristine um, self-care routine or just daily routine. And they're the type of people that you travel with that need an agenda and they need to know what they're doing at specific times of the day. These are your conventional organizers. And the funny thing about the military is I am... I am a social helper, but I'm also a conventional organizer. I think I'm a blend between the two. Um, However, I possess more of the leadership and the ideas aspect, which is what takes me out of that category. Um, But I think everyone who does go into the military, regardless of their personality, learn how to become more of a conventional organizer. And if you're not naturally just a conventional organizer, you probably aren't going to do well in the military because you're going to get tired of being told what to do 
and having a systematic, specific set way of things that don't vary outside the lines too much. And I think that that's probably why my husband and I went a little nuts when we were in the service. You love it, but then you hate it. It's it's a love-hate relationship. But anyways, uh, someone who's a conventional organizer is really going to be good at working with written records and numbers in a systematic and orderly way. So these are people who are going to be able to put files together. Fantastic. So if you're looking into getting into admin or um, medical records, insurance, that is a really great field for you to get into. Also, uh, mathematics. This is a really good way to work with data. And some researchers are even great in this segment as well. The So they're going to value their success in business and see themselves as orderly and good at following a set plan. So if you give them a plan, they can follow through and do it pristine to the way that you have put it together. However, do not expect for them to go off the cuff and come up with their own plans because it's a little bit more difficult for them. So those are the six personality types and the different careers uh, that could associate with them. If you do a little bit more research, you can find some other careers that will go along with that as well. Um, If you go onto psychologytoday.com, it is a fantastic resource to use to come up with different personality tests. And on these tests, they can help you anywhere from careers to relationships um, to personality, so many different things. And you can go on there and find a career test. If you pay, I want to say like $3.99. It ranges from $3.99 to $5.99. It'll give you a more comprehensive report. Um, and then you can get more details. Some of them are paid and some of them are completely free. I've actually bought some of the tests because they are reputable and they are based off of the original psychologist work, not these other sites that, you know, add and subtract things to this that wasn't original to the theorists who were coming up with this. So look up John Holland's six personality types and... Again, you will be able to go through this, and hopefully this will be a little bit helpful. And for my friend out there who ended up messaging me, maybe this will be a good place for you to start. If you're looking for a spiritual assessment, you can find tons of those on Google, too, if you're looking more uh, for spiritual gifting. And you can also talk to your mentors and pastors at the church because I'm sure that they can get their hands on some good assessments as well. So thanks for tuning in to the Vine and Branches podcast this evening. And this was our segment on Holland Six Personality Types.